first and foremost, coming out of COVID and all of the different work paradigms we've been dealing with, people are not interested in working with people they don't like, respect, or that feel respect them. So I think, honestly, it sounds trite, but culture and work environment is the most important. The second most important thing is what's the mission? How impactful can I be in an organization? Doesn't matter if that's a big company or a small company, but nobody wants to just be in this narrowly uh, contrived role where, you know, they're sort of grinding out the same work product every day. Super important. And this is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. Hey, Clean Techers, welcome back to Scaling Clean. This is the podcast that gathers company building and management tips from the most accomplished leaders in clean tech. And I don't know about you, but everywhere I go and everyone I hear from in clean tech is wrestling with the same thing. Where do we find talent in a tight labor market? At TigerCom, we've got clients that are asking us to build corporate communications partly to support recruitment which is a relatively recent development. Our guest today is someone with almost 20 years experience solving that problem, much of it for clean economy companies. And as someone running one of those companies who's also looking for talent, I'm really looking forward to talking with Paige Caraturo, the San Francisco-based co-founder of SeaChange, which describes itself as a talent venture company. I love that. I suspect if anyone can give clean economy leaders useful advice on handling this super tight labor market, it's Paige. I also think the way Paige's shop pursues its mission will equip her with some longer-term insights for us into what work environments and interview processes are best suited for today's talent pool. Paige, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm happy to be here. All right. Given the challenge of the labor market, I suspect a lot of our listeners are going to want to hear what you have to say about their challenge. But let me start with our first standard question so our listeners can get to know you a little bit. How would you summarize the arc of your career as a clean tech leader? Well, I actually wouldn't summarize it at all as a corporate clean tech leader, but really as an entrepreneur. Um, I had a few corporate jobs early in my life. Um, that were fairly short-lived. I wanted constantly to innovate in bigger companies, even in support roles, and realized pretty quickly that my desires didn't really fit into their construct. Um, So after my first child, I changed gears and started my first entrepreneurial firm called My Virtual Solution. Funny enough, it was an all virtual executive assistant business well before that was a thing. So I guess I was an innovator even in my early days. Um, That led to a number of amazing clients um, and different projects over the course of about three years. And then I ultimately got wooed by one of my clients uh, to help him build a business. And it ended up really that that relationship transformed the way I thought about business in general. Hmm. And he told me two important things that ended up being very, very crucial in my current 
kind of role in the industry. One was specialize, don't generalize. And the best time to build a brand is in a down market. And those two comments would ring truer than true when I decided to start Entertech Search Partners in May of 2009 in the middle of the worst financial crisis and uh, <laughs> labor market situation. Um, and you fast forward to today, Entertech has transformed into sea change. Uh, and it's just been a, a crazy ride. Um, we provide broad talent services to investors, portfolio companies, and and even some really big innovative firms like Ford and Walmart. Okay. I, I know we were talking before the show that the differences between the big companies you service and your firm, or perhaps mine, I think actually the size of your firm is going to equip you really well to answer this question. So if we were going to split screen the way you first started managing other people and the way you manage other people now, and you and I are sit back with some popcorn and watch, watch that clip run. What are the differences that we would see. And I'm really interested in the, that answer kind of through the lens of what your firm does. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. You know, I oftentimes feel like I live the same life as my clients. Uh, I'm an incredibly empathetic partner to them because I'm in many cases going through precisely the same growing pains and management challenges and making decisions about who to bring onto the team and when as they are. And, you know, early in the history of Sea Change, uh, formerly Entertech, you know, it really was a lifestyle business. The, the idea was I would hire a few more people just like me. I understood them. They understood me. We were all kind of cowboys and cowgirls. And it didn't really require a lot of management. But as the business grew, and this is the case with many of the startups that we work for, those first handful of folks or people that are in their network, just like them, maybe went to school with them, et cetera, very familiar. And, and it's a very familial relationship. So it requires less structured or their perception is it requires less structured, structured management. Um, but, but as I started to have to build infrastructure to support the growth of the business that was not simply commercially oriented or delivery oriented in terms of the actual recruiting business, I found that it was very challenging to manage other humans. I really wasn't equipped and hadn't really had that sort of formal training or pedigree. Um, the key to being successful today in that situation, because I still have a number of people to manage, is I had to get very quickly in touch with what I'm great at and what I'm not great at. And, you know, there are a number of frameworks and tools for early stage companies. One in particular is uh, a platform called uh, Entrepreneurial Operating System. And it's really based on the concept of visionary and integrator. And that is really how I've run my business. I am, you know, a big thinker and getting me corralled sometimes can be challenging. And it's really about hiring folks uh, around you that have a completely different set of skills that fill that gap and then allowing them to do what they do and allowing me to do what what I do and, and realizing I was never going to be that perfect CEO that could do all of the things. No one can. It's just like trying to be a perfect mother. Doesn't work. We're, we're plus 20 episodes into this podcast series. I haven't 
I haven't yet met the perfect CEO or even one who thinks he or she is the perfect CEO. So you're in good company. Okay, excellent. <laughs> you moved into clean economy relatively early in your career, year seven. Is that correct? Actually, third year of my recruiting career, but I would say about 10 years into my just overall career. What drew you to this space and what keeps you here? be honest, it was a completely happy accident. Um, the, the person that I referenced earlier that was really this transformational mentor um, and somebody I worked for before I was in the recruiting business, we were actually in commercial real estate. And there's incredible parallels between real estate and uh, the business that we're in today in terms of the process. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have gotten out of real estate just before the crash in 2006. Moved my family to a little island called Bainbridge Island, where I'm actually recording from today um, in my summer place. And, you know, I was really trying to figure out something different to do. And I was honestly just simply approached by somebody who was a partner in a very big firm who also had moved to Bainbridge Island for lifestyle reasons. And it, it was completely by accident that I ended up in this business. And in the first two years, it wasn't specifically in clean tech. Their clients, this very large firm out of Houston, their clients were the big oil companies, funny enough, and they had all different practice areas. And the little practice area I was in was actually sales recruiting, in particular, technical sales recruiting. Um, and it really, three months into the business, I hadn't really necessarily decided, like, was this what I wanted to do for the rest of my life? And within three months, realized that I would start my own firm probably within two years and really began making that plan. And it wasn't until just post the election of Obama that I began to see an extraordinary amount of opportunity in smaller companies, emerging companies that were related um, unfortunately, this firm just didn't wasn't interested in working with with startups and didn't have a fee structure that would support it. So I gave notice on a Thursday and I had my shop up and running on a Tuesday. And, you know, the rest is sort of history. My passion for the environment and interest and concern over climate change really evolved through my education in the industry. I grew up with my clients. There really weren't any other firms that were specialized in this space in those days. That was 2000, early 2009. So I was definitely a clean tech 1.0 uh, person for sure. If I channel our past 20 guests, I think they would all want me to ask you this. What are the biggest mistakes you see companies making in how they recruit and retain talent? I mean, the overarching answer is they are out of touch with market dynamics or don't have the tools to really illuminate the talent landscape. Sort of like going to sell to a customer that you know nothing about. You're not really sure what their problem is. You don't know who else might be competing against you. Uh, you don't really know what their budget is. It's exactly the same thing. Um, or if you use a real estate analogy, um, very similar. You need to understand if you, are, if you want a little yellow house with a corner lot and a white picket fence in XYZ town, and there's only one of those on the market, you're probably going to pay more um, than it's listed for. And if there are eight of them, 
you you probably have more leverage. It's precisely the same in, in the candidate market. And unfortunately, all of the indicators around things like compensation and demand and candidate psychology, it's a little bit like real estate comps, right? They're six months old, a year old, people that compile mm-hmm. that data. None of it's real time. And unfortunately, in the crazy news cycle of economics, even macroeconomics, psychology and demand and supply can change week to week. And you really have to uh, take the time to understand who you're looking for, what else they might be considering, what general risk tolerances they may or may not have based on broader macroeconomic issues, where they're located, what stage of career they're in, etc. I love that phrase, illuminate the talent landscape. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that there are a company that is large, that has a really large internal recruiting function, a mature business, has uh, the benefit of maybe years of hiring data. They have the benefit of lots of resources, potentially other consultants who can help provide real-time market data. But the majority of our customers that are C to Series B early stage venture back companies simply don't have that ability. Half the time, they don't even have an internal recruiter or talent person. And so for us, you know, we we are looking, we are building and providing those tools to our clients. Um, it's fairly bespoke. We built those tools for us internally, but we are starting to believe that there is an opportunity to provide that level of transparency broadly to the climate tech market. Um, and we're working through, there's more news to come on that. I don't want to sort of spoiler a spoiler alert, and I certainly don't want to self-promote, but I do think there are a number of firms that are trying to provide some of this data. Uh, you know, AI has tried to solve this problem and it, unfortunately, it's just not specific enough. The The models are too broad and too general. You really have to train data models that are very specific, not only for industry specificity, but stage of company specificity. Recruiting and, and trying to acquire talent in an early stage company is a recruiting discipline all by itself, regardless of what industry sector you're in. How does Paige Caraturo keep track of what's happening in the labor market, the zeitgeist of the talent pool. What do you do to stay on top of that? You have to be talking to people every day, all the time. So I have a team. um, We're eight folks that are in the market every day. Um, We communicate regularly about actual market conditions. We spend time with our customers. We go to all the industry events Um, But we're also building tools with partners that allow us to use tools like AI to to create more scale to that anecdotal market knowledge. And we don't have it solved yet, but we do believe that we have a path to solve that now. When our clients work with us, they get the benefit of us just talking to thousands of candidates a month. And being able to compile that data, unfortunately, somewhat manually right now, uh, but we we certainly can see easily with technology that we'll be able to provide incredible 
an incredible engine to what is still a very human centric person to person business. Another follow-up. If you had to summarize what potential clean tech talent wants in clean tech jobs, how would you summarize that in a paragraph? I, I know that's a, that's a tough question to ask you, but it's your fault because you're so interesting. I'm going to have to ask you these things. <laughs> well, I think most first and foremost coming out of COVID and all of the different work paradigms we've been dealing with, people are not interested in working with people they don't like, respect, or that feel respect them. So I think, honestly, it sounds trite, but culture and work environment is the most important. The second most important thing is what's the mission? How impactful can I be in an organization? doesn't matter if that's a big company or a small company, but nobody wants to just be in this narrowly uh, contrived role where, you know, they're sort of grinding out the same work product every day. Super important. Obviously, people also really want flexibility in their lives to be able to not only follow their passion at work and be able to affect huge cosmic issues like climate change, but have the freedom to do that in their personal lives as well. Um, and I think that is really the most important thing. Everybody wants to maximize their W-2. Everybody wants to make sure they feel like they're being compensated fairly in the market. But we have seen some pretty amazing transitions, some that have been you know, in the news, not, not necessarily represented by us, of folks that have really put aside, who've already made a lot of money in other industries, who have said, we're really going to refocus and try to solve this problem. And in many cases, we're seeing people move from very large companies into, even in an uncertain macro economic environment, move into higher risk companies because they feel like they can really make a difference. Get meat and potatoes with me for a second. What are your biggest recruiting tips, the three that you would just hand out on this show to the listeners? Well, if it's from the candidate's perspective, well, from the client's perspective, so any companies that are out there thinking about recruiting, particularly whether it's a big company or a small company, there's three things, clarity, transparency, and cadence. And and some people might not understand the difference between clarity and transparency, but let me just clarify it for you. Clarity is communicating with the candidate. So it's, it's, it's sort of like any kind of customer journey. The candidate's journey is just as important. It's going to be a reflection of what it's like to work at your company, period, end of discussion. And so having clarity up front, setting expectations. This is what the interview process is going to be. This is likely how long our process is going to take. Here are the people that you're likely to interact with during the process, et cetera. Being really clear about what that looks like. Are they all face-to-face interviews? Are they video? Are there projects that I'll need to do, et cetera? Transparency is once that process starts to have clear and constant communication with the candidate about where they stand, where they are in the process, et cetera. That is that middle part is super important because if a candidate feels unloved or feels like the company isn't prioritizing the process, 
they will they will move on. Even if they stay in the process, you likely won't be able to close them, and that's the biggest challenge. And then the third is simply cadence. That's just about su- supply and demand and market conditions. And you cannot take three months to get through an interview process. I mean, you've really you got to figure it out in thirty days if you're going to have any chance of winning great talent. Wow, great then, advice. Yeah, that's the company side. And then from the candidate side, it's really about you. You have to. It's not passive, right? It's just like the real estate market. The very best houses generally are off market, right? And once a house comes on the market, you're going to be in multiple offer competition. Same thing with jobs. So if you're really committed to changing jobs or you're in an active search, you can't wait for that job to show up. You have to absolutely go out, figure out what companies you might. There's amazing tools out there. Climate Draft, Climate Base. Um, there's a bunch I'm not thinking of, and I'm happy to you know circle back so you can get them in the show notes. But please, please. In- incredible outlets for folks that are either not from climate that want to get in, help them understand there's lots of job board aggregation. So sometimes you use the job board aggregation to understand what kinds of companies you might want to work for. They may not have this specific job, but you need to be connecting directly. No, no negativity on HR, but they have a lot on their plate. You need to be connecting directly with leaders in the businesses and their investors that you ultimately want to work for or that you think are potentially a good fit. I get candidates all the time. I'm also an operating partner with Blue Bear Capital, and I manage all of the talent strategy across their portfolio. Um, And I constantly get referred great candidates that have been smart enough to just reach out directly to the principals of the fund about their portfolio, let them know what companies they might be interested, how they fit in, what their passion is. Those, of course, get funneled to me. And it has been incredibly effective. And we've actually placed a number of key folks through that process that probably would have not been uncovered by us in the in the perfect timing. So you have to own your own process. You 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 can't be passive, but you also have to build great relationships with great specialist recruiters over your career. Super important. You somewhat answered this on a categorical basis already, but I want to get, again, kind of meat and potatoes interviewing for your typical growth company in clean economy, that executive team. What do you want them to know about successful interviewing? How should they do it? I mean, that is a super subjective question, unfortunately, because every single environment requires sometimes a different, there is no one size fits all. There is no magic wand that you wave. There's not one personality profiling platform that works perfectly. It's really about getting down to figuring out sometimes what happens is there's a job description, there's a whole slate of interviews, management folks that might be interviewing candidates or even peer level folks are asking the same questions over and over. The key for a company is to every single person in that interview process that's going to be interviewing the candidate needs to have a goal in mind. And it if it's a peer level person, maybe it's or a technical, maybe it's somebody who's focusing just on technical things or just on culture or just on leadership or whatever. And it's about not consistently 
taking a candidate through, run me through your resume. That's not going to accomplish anything. You really have to go into the interviews with a strategic plan. Secondly, you absolutely need to understand what you're trying to solve for. People don't care about what the day-to-day job is. If you're a product manager, you kind of understand what your day-to-day role is. What you really want to know and and what will help you close that candidate is really communicating to them what value this role, like what is the impact of this role? Why right now is this the most important thing? Or what does it mean potentially? What, What does it look like a year from now? What big, and you have to be really transparent, what big problems are you actually trying to solve? You can't sugarcoat it. You need to, you need to walk a line between selling, meaning being really clear about what the opportunity in your company is, what the opportunity in the role is, and being extremely transparent and maybe for early stage companies, even trying to scare people away a little bit, right? Really being honest about what the challenge is because the folks that are a fit, the, the more you scare them, the more they want it, right? And that's always, you know, it's been a joke in our company. You know, people often ask me, how do you screen candidates? How do you decide who you're going to shortlist? And usually, particularly when I'm recruiting for early stage companies, the first thing I do is is try to scare them away and tell them how big the challenge is, how exciting the opportunity is, but how big it is. And Ask them some very hard questions. I try to disqualify them before I try to qualify them. And generally, mm. the way that people react um, will be a, a pretty telling sign. And then you can deep dive into all of the details. It doesn't really matter if you spend 30 minutes on figuring out every technical skill set this person has or every deal story they've, you know, their best deal story. If their risk tolerance isn't a match for your stage of business, you're wasting your time. If their career goals aren't aligned with what your trajectory is. You're wasting your time. So you really got to get out of the weeds and, and sort of conceptually think about first, what's most important? What is the candidate buying? Like, what do they want to buy? Just like a customer, what do they want to buy? Before you start selling them or information gathering, you really have to set the right paradigm. And I think that's really important. So the first, and I'm, I'm, again, happy to share some things with your, with your listeners uh, in a more structured document, but really it's about setting the context. The first interview is certainly selling, building a rapport. And then as they go through an interview process with other folks in the business to really have a very specific outcome uh, goal for each of those conversations and not to really have folks spend time having them, you know, repeat and reiterate things that they've already communicated to others. The other key thing that usually happens in, in small companies as people are trying to interview is they're not gathering data. None of it's data driven. It's all very subjective gut feeling, et cetera. And some of that, you know, some of that is valid, but it has to be backed up with data. You all have to go in saying, these are the five most important things that we're going to try and figure out about this person. And then, you know, interviewer one, your job is this thing. Interviewer two, here's the other thing, et cetera. And then you have to coalesce. You have to debrief. You have to do it quickly. And if you don't have a structured way to capture that data and, and revisit it, because you might be interviewing eight candidates, you're not going to get to a decision and then you end up relying on your gut and you don't make the right decision.
That is so fascinating. What I hear you saying is essentially taking the interview process that a company has for a particular candidate and whoever's going to interview that candidate, the company, you segment the decision-making so you can have a conversation-specific goal exactly. each for each kind. That is, that's really good. Thank Absolutely. you. Okay. Yeah, you bet. Okay. So from the hiring and retention standpoint, remote only, remote in-office hybrid, in-office, what are your thoughts on these options? And are there certain types of people who work better remotely than others? Yeah. I would say by far hybrid is sort of the new paradigm, right? Um, You've got to create a structure that meets the needs of a pretty complex candidate demographic. Uh, For instance, earlier career candidates generally want some level of social interaction and face-to-face mentorship. So this idea of fully remote isn't always attractive to them. They're early in their Mm -hmm. career. They want to be around other folks who can provide a different level of mentorship than you can get simply with a weekly check-in. And they just oftentimes need more hands-on training and oversight, et cetera. At the same time, you know, it, it, and the reason that is, is it's likely most congruent with their most recent life experience, right? They might've graduated from college or grad school recently. And it's, that's much more the way that they have learned and absorbed data, et cetera. Now, some of these folks have come through the COVID era and and may have done remote learning, but it's still really, really challenging. And the lines of work and personal time in that demographic is very blurred. So although they want some level of structure, they do want significant flexibility. Mid-career candidates you know, are generally looking for remote first, but with the ability to work in a hub a few days a week or travel regularly to be with their team. Um, Their reasons are generally different. Sometimes, oftentimes this demographic might have a family um, and their home environment may or may not be conducive to working at home, right? They may have very small children at home and they're in there with their nanny and their dog and they maybe don't have a huge house or a separate office. And so being able to provide shared workspace, not a traditional office, but a stipend to allow them to sort of get with another group of people, whether it's other employees or even just other industry people um, in, in in a shared workspace can be really helpful. And then later career folks, generally tend to favor remote first. They're very experienced people. They can manage remotely, but sometimes they can struggle with the most cutting edge team collaboration tools and it requires much more support. And you just have to know that going in and and have the ability to really get them up to speed on some of the tools. Don't assume, and I'm, I'm in this group, um, that, you know, I sort of know how to use every tool perfectly. And, and I just hired an amazing young woman who's recently graduated from the university of Washington and the impact she's made on our organization just from a technology perspective in the first two weeks has been pretty dramatic. So, Great answer. Really, really good answer. Thank you. Okay, we'd like to close with two questions. First, if Paige's performance is an essential part of Paige's success, are there hobbies, habits, practices, whether they're at work or outside of work, that you have found boost Paige's performance? that you like and you do on a regular basis. We've heard everything from going to the opera to working on cars, to hiking every weekend, to getting up at five o'clock in the morning. I'm just endlessly fascinated by the answers to this question. Yeah. It's a combination. Um, 
you know, I think I mentioned earlier the entrepreneurial operating system. It's a it's based on a book by Gina Wickman, famous book called Traction. Um, and what I've learned about myself is I have to be hyper organized. And I mean, in a very structured way. So we use a tool called ClickUp for our project management. But to even get to a place where I'm not overwhelmed visually by the to-do list, because you can be very, and then you see this giant structure and you're like, ah. For me, I'm an early riser. So I need about an hour of time before I even look at a screen to just sort of think. I, I'm not sort of a traditional meditator, although I'd love to learn to do it. I My mind moves. It's very hard to quiet my mind. The only thing that really works is walking for me. And I'm lucky enough to live in Mill Valley at a trailhead. So in about three minutes, I can be up, um, you know, on an incredible trail system. And it's really just about the very quiet of the morning um, and being able to just get, even if it's 30 minutes, there's just something about that physical body-mind connection for me that is wildly beneficial. In my perfect world, I actually do Pilates every morning in addition to the walk. I don't always have the time to do that, but um, for me, it's it's mind-body. And then it's absolutely tool sets that fill the place of having a naturally organized mind. I just have a more chaotic brain in the way I think about things, and I, I have to have a structure. Um, and Unfortunately, even just having the structure is not enough. I need someone to manage the structure for me. So I'm high maintenance, but um, it's I've gotten better at it every year. I'm certainly still, you know, have a long way to go, but it's it's been very, very helpful for me. I'm going to rename the show ADHD Ears Are Us. That's my that's my working title. I'm thinking yes, about it next year, but absolutely. All right. Last question. Has your work in clean economy left you a climate optimist or climate pessimist and why? Yeah, absolutely a climate optimist. And I think for me, I'm so lucky to have this amazing seat at the table where I'm dealing with the investors in the space as both clients and and just partners. I'm dealing with the most innovative early stage companies and also working with huge corporates that have a massive influence on what happens. I mean, a great example is is Ford and Tesla's recent announcement about, you know, the supercharger network and, and what that meant for everybody else. And so because I have a front row seat to all of the moving parts, it it just never ceases to amaze me the level of capital, brain power, motivation that's coalescing around this problem. And so I'm I'm lucky that you know, I, I get to see behind the curtain much more than other folks do, and I am eternally optimistic. Paige Carterra, this has been an awesome conversation. I could easily take this into two episodes if we had the time to keep talking. I'm grateful to you for the wisdom you've brought here. Really appreciate the work you're doing in the sector, and I'm really grateful you took the time to join us on Scaling Clean. This is going to be a great episode. I can already sense it. And I know a lot of people are going to be wanting more. So do not be surprised if we come knocking your door for conversation two. Just warning you now. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Well, 
we're uh, we enjoyed our time with Paige Caraturo, and we're going to talk to you on the next episode of Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. Until then, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. Our producer is Brian Mendes. If you like what you hear on Scaling Clean episodes, we'd appreciate it if you can give us a five-star rating and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you all the best in your clean tech endeavors.